Hey, good people, how are we doing? You know, sometimes it is so great to be able to re-meet people that um, you had known or known from a distance for some point in your life and then kind of have situations bring them back into your life in a more active and more potent way. Uh, today we have someone who I went to high school with years and years ago, uh, didn't really talk to in high school, but um, met out randomly and um, she's doing such amazing things and she's going to tell you all about it. But what I want y'all to do is really listen because she has one of those stories and one of those um, one of those pathways that is going to shift you if you're looking to do something great but have a little bit of hesitancy or have a little bit of um, apprehension her story is definitely 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 going to rattle that idea that you have to do it a certain way or you have to be stuck in a certain mode or pattern of doing things so enjoy and i'll talk to y'all on the other side peace On the road. Good people, how are we doing? Today we have someone that is super incredible in my mind and has been for probably longer than she knows. Uh, she was a little bit um, older than me in high school, but I always looked up to her. We have Camilla Akloff here. Hello. Camilla, how are you? How, how's everything at LREI? Um, I'm doing very well. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Um, I'm actually, I meant to tell you this earlier. I'm not at LREI anymore. Oh, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> surprise. Um, <laughs> I, um, I actually just switched, um, schools. I'm working at Dream Charter High School, which is a charter school in East Harlem. And I actually worked there not last year, but the year before. I worked there for a year as their Spanish teacher. And I have a friend from, from university um, at Tufts when I did my undergrad. And he's the basically the assistant principal there. So that's how I got kind of connected with the school. And we reconnected over the summer. Mm -hmm. um, and I ended up going back there. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting to me um, that people, there are a lot of people that I know from EI that end up in the educational world or educational realm, right? Um, I was a knucklehead, so I, I did not think that I would end up anywhere near education, probably for the better of the kids involved. But um, what do you think kind of drew you to the world of education? Yeah, that's a, a long story, I think. And I think it starts with my experience at LREI. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think it, you know, growing up at, I, I started at Little Red when I was four and I went all the way through 12th grade. Um, I got in through the early steps program, um, which is a program that helps, um, 
people of color get their children into independent schools in New York City. Um, and from a very young age. So I, I started when I was four and it was, you know, I was immersed into this sort of white upper class world. And I would go home to, I, I grew up in Fort Greene, which was very different yeah, um, sure. 30 years ago than it is now. Um, and so it, it just looked very different, right? And I, and I knew that I, didn't have the same sort of resources as my peers. I didn't look like my peers. My mother's from Colombia, so I spoke Spanish with her at home. So there are a lot of things that made me feel very different at LREI. Um, and I think I didn't realize that difference until I got older um, and people started to expect me to speak a certain way or behave a certain way. Um, and I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> like, I remember I visited my cousins when I was, um, I think I was 12 the first time I visited them. This is like, these are my cousins on my dad's side. My dad is African-American. Mm -hmm. um, and they were in Detroit, Michigan. And I remember hearing several times, like, why you talk white? You think you're white? Like, what? <laughs> and that was, that was a, I mean, that and a, a number of other things that happened on that trip were, were very sort of shocking to me um, because I think it was the first time that I realized that the world saw me sort of differently than I than, than the experience that I had actually had. Um, because in my, in my neighborhood in Fort Greene, I only had a couple of friends. Like it wasn't, I didn't live on a block where there were a lot of kids. Um, so I wasn't really like immersed in the, the very sort of working class neighborhood that I grew up in. Um, I was, you know, all of my, my social life, my experience was all at Little Red um, at this private school. And, um, and then on the other side, my family experience was very much like in the home with my parents. My dad is, is a, is a jazz musician <laughs> um, who traveled the world, travels the world, and is sort of um, I don't want to say anti necessarily anti anything, but he's not sort of um, he's very sort of critical of the typical American lifestyle. Gotcha. Um, so he wasn't a sort of typical I don't know black American guy. And then my mother was you know, from Colombia, and um, my, my family experience was really with her family, um, because we would go visit Colombia every year, and I would see my grandmother and my cousins, and I would go there, and I would have to speak Spanish, and it was a totally different world, um, and so, <laughs> so yeah, so, like, I wasn't super, um, I don't want to say attached, but, you know, I saw my aunts and uncles on my dad's side once in a while, but I wasn't super immersed in my, in my American side. And then my family life was very much, um, Colombian and, you know, the difference between, um, seeing we're, we're from Cali, Colombia, which is, you know, it's the third biggest city in Colombia, but there's definitely like the poverty that you see there is much more apparent in a, in a sort of different way than it is um in new york city or than it felt like in new york like i remember seeing like five-year-olds begging for food on the street and it was just 
and when I was 12, you know, I was just like, why, you know, why is this, why is it that, um, my, the, the people of Colombia, the, the people who are my family have, you know, this, and this is the life here. And then when I go back to New York, I'm in this very sort of upper class, yeah. very privileged world. Um, and then at the same time, like people are seeing me and expecting me to behave in a way that I don't actually behave. So I had all of these questions um, or speak in a way that I don't actually speak. Right? Mm-hmm. I had all of these questions and um, that started when I was at LREI. And I started to, you know, be able to explore that a little bit. I think I was really lucky um, because I had a really good group of, of friends at LRI. Um, and I was able to talk about my identity with them, especially my friend, Courtney Hartz. I don't know if you remember her. I do. I do. <laughs> so she, we, I remember having so many talks with her. And then eventually I went on to Tufts. Mm-hmm. Um and I studied, um, I chose to study sociology because that was the first time I was able to put, almost like put words to my experience, you know, be able to say, you know, to define like what is race? What is ethnicity? What is nationality? How are those things similar but different? Um, what is socioeconomic status? What is gender? How does that affect um, the way we behave? How does it affect people's expectations of you? How does it affect your life chances? Um, So all of those questions were answered for me in studying sociology. And I think that sparked in me like a desire to um, change the world. (laughs) And as a typical uh, university student, Mm -hmm. um, bleeding heart kind of desire to change the world and, and feel like, you know, I think in a lot of ways I was, I felt that I was maybe, um, something of an exception to the rule, um, of capitalism, right. Of (laughs) Of what capitalism allows for, um, especially for black and brown people. Um, and I, I felt that I had had so many privileges and, it, and there was just so much inequality and I wanted to be a part of changing that. So I, whew, I think I really wanted to work in education policy. Um, and, and I thought to myself, well, I should be a teacher if I'm gonna work in education policy, I should know what it's actually like to work in the classroom with students. So I applied for um, the New York Teaching Fellows Program and got in, I did that. And if if you don't know what the New York Teaching Fellows Program is, it's a, um, it's like sort of a fast track teacher training program, sort of like Teach for America, but it's meant for career changers and high achievers um, in prestigious universities, <laughs> um, which is similar to Teach for America. And, and you know, there are many problems with that. Um, I think that is definitely problematic in a lot of ways, um, but yeah, I ended up doing that program. So for, I got like two months training over the summer and then started my master's program. Like I graduated from Tufts 2011, two months training over the summer, the fall of 2011, I started teaching um, in a, 
what's called a Title I school. So the Teaching Fellows Program expects you to teach at Title I schools, which are schools that have at least 70% of the students are on free lunch. Um, so that sort of suggests a socioeconomic status, right, for many of the students. Um, so these are like high needs kids. And um, yeah, so I did that. And so for two years I was teaching and getting my master's degree and then I, I stayed for another year um, and then ended up leaving. But that is the, the long story, the long answer to your question of how I got into education. Tell you what, I love that you gave that basis because it gives us so much to build on. Right. So we we already have so much uh, so much meatage to get to. Right. Let's go back a little bit. And I want to talk about the power of language and the power of voice. Right. Because you say and I I didn't know this because we weren't like we weren't I was a little bit younger. So we weren't necessarily close in high school. Um, but like I said, I did look up to all the you know, the older guys. Um, but I do have that similar story of. Uh, going home to a very different type of environment than uh, what was present at um, LREI and getting those kind of critiques of why are you talking like that, right? And then I, another layer that you have is going to Cali and the you know, city and having that whole, a whole different language, right? So talk a little bit about the, the importance of language to you growing up and how you've developed um, not only as a bilingual or, you know, polyglot rather, but how that's impacted the potency of your voice and how you, you know, insert your voice into separate conversations. Mm. Oh my gosh. Um, interesting. Uh, I, I, yeah, I don't think that I realized the power of being bilingual until I got older. Um, I, I think when I was younger, and this is really typical for, for bilingual kids, I think, um, I didn't, I almost like, I don't know, was I embarrassed? <laughs> um, I think that there was definitely an element of, well, well I'll, I'll, I'll go back to, to being, I'll go even further back to before I was embarrassed when, when I was, um, two, uh, I, I, maybe as a two-year-old when I didn't have all of the influences, outside influences of society, I had, a, um, I think a sort of special relationship with language where I would speak to my mom in Spanish and then I would speak to my dad in English. And I've seen like home videos of this and I'm just like, wow, like I was like three years old and I knew who spoke Spanish and who spoke English. <laughs> um, and but then, you know, I went to school and I became sort of shy about it. All of my spent, all of my friends spoke English. My mom spoke English with an accent. And there was, you know, it wasn't like that special that I spoke Spanish. Of course, I could um, help my friends in Spanish class as we got older. So that was nice. Um, but I think my parents really... Um, um, drilled the importance of my Latin heritage and the importance of speaking Spanish. And 
I luckily sort of listened <laughs> and decided to take Spanish throughout middle school and high school and knew that it was important for me to retain that language. Um, and I didn't really know why, <laughs> but I knew that it was important. I knew that it would be helpful. Um, and I guess I didn't come to think about my voice so much until later, until maybe even now. <laughs> um, because, so I guess, so after I, I, I did the teaching fellows program, I, I taught for three years in New York City and then I was very burnt out, decided to leave and eventually came to the conclusion that I wanted to go to Colombia, go back to Colombia, because I'd always wanted to, to live there, but because of the civil war and narco trafficking, my mother was very nervous about me being there. Um, but I ended up going back at, I think I was 26, and I wanted to study salsa dancing um, because Cali has a very specific type of salsa dancing um, that is a little bit different from the other styles that we see around the world. Um, and they have a very strong, that Cali is known as the uh, Capital Mundial de la Salsa, so the world capital of salsa. Um, and so I wanted to go back there and learn to dance because I had already been a social dance, a social salsa dancer you know, with the sort of other styles. And I wanted to learn this particular style and I wanted to get more in touch with my culture and my language. Mm -hmm. um, and so I ended up staying there for much longer than planned. I stayed there for three years. I became a part of this community. And then now, <laughs> um, well, I, I'll also say while I was there, I was I was teaching English um, at a university and I was teaching sociolinguistics and um, it, it, was, it was kind of cool because before then I had been teaching Spanish in New York City and then I went there and I was able to teach English and I, for political reasons, wasn't super excited about teaching English, <laughs> about sort of like that colonial aspect. <laughs> of me being there, being the American and you know, all of that. Um, but um, I think I became, I, I, I got more in touch with Spanish, with Spanish from Colombia. And, and when I came back um, a couple of years ago, I decided to work on a documentary that is about salsa dancing and gender expression. But to, to focus on your question about language um, and bilingualism and my voice, um, I think that I am now, as I work on this documentary, I sort of see the um, importance of my bilingualism and, and having been a part of this community and having been able to speak with them and, and still have friends there. Um, and also having been a part of the sort of intellectual community in the United States and being able to tie those two things together. Um, and, and produce a, a documentary that is completely in Spanish um, and it is told by, um, a story is told by the voices of the people who live there and who experience this life. Um, and, but, but also having my, you know, being able to edit and, and do the subtitles and, and talk about this idea, this phenomenon in English um, and just sort of bridge the two worlds, right? In a way that, um, 
I don't know. I, I feel, I feel, uh, a little weird about saying that I, <laughs> I am unique in my ability to, to bridge those two worlds because, because of who I am, because of how I grew up, because I'm bicultural, because I'm bilingual, because I love salsa, because I love, um, sociology. And I'm now able to sort of bridge those two things and, um, put my voice out there. I think it's not only a superpower that you possess and that polyglots, you know, in general possess, but it's also like the grace. You said social linguistics and it's kind of the graceful linguistics of being able, like you said, when you were three, being able to tell which parent to speak English to and which parent to speak Spanish to, right? And Or... I don't know if you've had this experience, but for me, I'm bilingual <laughs> in that I know how to speak LREI. I, I won't say the actual talk, but LREI talk and at home talk. If you know what I'm saying, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, and having the 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 grace to determine, all right, let me say this in this setting. Let me do this in this setting. Let me move this way, right? I've always been interested in kind of the nuance of, or the dichotomy really in, is it being authentic? Is it still being authentic if you have to change yourself based on the room or is it some sort of prevarication of who you are, right? Yeah, I think I, that's that's funny. I, I think I, I had that question when I was younger <laughs> um, about changing yourself. I think that has, that has to do more with my my other parts of my life, but but I, I I do think it is it can be authentic. Certainly, that even though you have to switch languages or code switch as they call it, yeah. um, I think that is totally authentic and totally necessary and definitely a superpower um, and something that. We don't, I think, talk about enough. You know, I think code switching between um, two established sort of like formally accept, socially accepted languages like English and Spanish is is sort of one thing. And, and um, I think people who grow up bilingual sort of fully understand that sometimes they have to be there. <laughs> Yeah. I have friends who I met in Cali who are, who are like me. They grew up here, but they're Colombian and, um, and we have, you know, we have this way that we kind of joke about like, oh, I did the American thing at this, in this moment. I, I thought I was supposed to be Colombian, but I did the American thing, but then I switched. You know, it's just, it, the language is, um, it's not just a different language, it's a different culture, right? It's a different way of behaving. Um, when you when you speak, when you sort of, when you become your sort of Spanish speaking self or when I do, we do, um, we do different things. We, we engage with people differently, we might, um, be more we might touch them more we'll definitely like say hello and give them a hug and you remember you become a little bit of a different um person but I think it's just showing a different side of yourself and that is definitely okay I think and and something that I really um enjoy but but to go back to what what you were saying about the LREI talk versus at home talk, I think, I mean, and I don't know if this is exactly what you're talking about, but I don't think we um, 
talk enough about code switching between standard American English and African-American English or black English as some people call it, um, which is something that I admittedly do not do well, but um, I definitely um, am fascinated by, I actually did a whole qualitative research project on that when I was in, in university. And when I, when I was in Columbia, I taught sociolinguistics and I taught the book, um, Talking Back, Talking Black wow. by John McWhorter. It's a really great book about, um, black English. He's a, he's a linguist at, um, Columbia University. Um, and he wrote this book and his, his main point, I would say in the book is that, well, one, I mean, he opens with saying that like every linguist knows that African-American English is a language, right? It's, it's, it's its own language. It has its own structure. Linguists know this, but you know, and society at large will not necessarily accept this um, because they look at it as slang, as bad grammar. Um, and that's for a number of reasons, right? That's because of racism. That's because we don't, we haven't, it hasn't been formally established, right? Then in, in other cultures, this kind of thing exists, right? And um, I don't know, we'll say in, in Haiti, they have, they might speak, a Haitian Creole at home, but French in school, or in Switzerland, they might speak Swiss German at home, but they'll speak German or high German in school. Um, but in the United States, we don't accept that some folks might speak black English at home and in school could speak standard American English. And we don't accept that those are two different languages and that can make a person bilingual and complex and intelligent in many different ways. So he starts with that, right? And he sort of throws that, John Recorder sort of says, okay, we've already gotten past that. What my point is, is that African-American English or black English is actually more complex than standard American English. And he gives the, the ways in which he believes it is more complex. Um, and, it, and it's, it's really cool. Um, it's a really cool book. And, and I just, I wish that we as a culture, American culture would accept that and, and celebrate that, um, like celebrate the language of the black people of the United States. I mean, there are many different black people in the United States, right? Immigrants from different yeah. countries. And then also the African-American folks who who have been here for generations but um i wish that that were more it were more acceptable to to talk about that and to to accept that we just there are these languages and and they inform different cultures and sometimes that makes being in the united states difficult and complicated um but it's it's a real thing and we need to to embrace it <laughs> love the fact that because a lot of times when people um i don't know if you know this but i'm a prep for prep kid and a lot of uh the community uh expresses a lot that they feel disconnected from their home base or their home community because they spend majority of their time um in these you know societies i'll call them um, these schools. And uh, a lot of times what will happen is after college, they'll, or after, yeah, after college, they'll find some way to reconnect with uh, their home-based culture and really entrench themselves in that culture. 
Um, I did it through rapping, through hip hop and, and getting involved in that community. I know a lot of people go back to Africa, like go and spend time. I know someone who spent time in South Africa, like three or four years, right? And you going back to Cali, going to Columbia for three years, it interests me for a couple of reasons. One, I'm a punk when it comes to moving, right? Like if it's not Georgia or New York, I'm, I might be there for like a week, but I'm already itching to go home by Thursday, right? Like, uh. so that I want to talk about the courage that it took to, to move there. But then I want to move, if you will, uh, you said that you saw the five-year-old a little bit earlier in life, but I want to talk a little bit about um, the the difference between American culture and maybe Colombian culture in America and Colombian culture in Colombia, right? So uh, start off with that. Um, what it, what it took you inside to make that leap? Sure. Um, well. Um... I will say that I have, I'm ever since I was young, I don't think I ever had a super strong attachment to my home. Mm -hmm. Um, I never got homesick. My mom's going to, if she hears it, she's going to be mad. Um, so yeah, I've always been okay with being outside of the home. Um, and oh, the, so the courage that it took to move there I think well one it was something I always wanted to do right it was I always wanted to sort of reconnect with my um Colombian culture and well I, I was going through some difficult things so I was very burnt out from teaching um I was in a relationship that was not sort of going the way that I thought it would. Mm -hmm. And I think I felt like what I was, I was 26. I was like, this is the time. Like when, I'll, when am I going to be able to do this? I don't have children. I don't have anything tying me down. Um, I'm young. Like I want to study dance. So the longer I wait, the harder it's going to be. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, dancer, professional dancers start very young. So I felt like that was the moment to do it when I was 26 and I was healthy and I wanted to study dance. So it was, it was a physical thing. Um, and I knew that my body was only getting older. So I'm, you know, you have to take advantage of, of that of the moment, right? And I think I also read, I think this, at that time I read this book. I don't know if you've heard of this book called um, The Four Hour Workweek. No. It's by, it's by Tim Ferriss. He is a, I don't know, I call him a pioneer in lifestyle design. So mm. he, he was one of the sort of early people who um, started like internet businesses and would like, work from you know work remotely and you know make money on online and, and live in another country so make dollars but live um in another country at a very live very well somewhere else and he would do these like he's he did a um a tango competition and he would just do he learned many languages he was like a he is like a sort of uh 
a life hacker, like figuring out the quickest way, the quickest and most efficient way to live your best life, to put it that way, healthy, happy, all of these things. Um, and I definitely recommend his book, his books, he has many books um, and podcasts and, and the whole lot. But, but that book basically opened my eyes and made me realize, oh, I don't have to live a conventional life. Like people tell you, you go to school, you go to university, you get a job, you work, maybe you have a relationship, maybe you have kids, like that's what you're supposed to do. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I don't have to do that. Um, I can live a life that I actually want to live and I can I can choose it and I can make it how I want it to be. <laughs> um, so that's basically why I chose to do it. And I knew that I had a safety net in Kali. Also, I had my family. Um, I, uh, what else? I, before I went, I spent, before I moved there, I had spent a couple of months there and I met, these people were also important. I met this many travelers who were traveling through Kali. And one of them was a German woman. And she, I don't know, what was she? She was probably like 28. And she had been traveling through Latin America by herself for, by the time I met her, she had been traveling for like a year. And I was like, mind completely blown. Like, what? Like, you can do that? You can travel the world by yourself as a woman? She was a white German girl traveling through Latin America. So I want to ask this, right? You had that Tim Ferriss moment, that, oh, wait a minute moment. And the German lady, the, oh, wait a minute moment. How, because some people, for some people, it's just like this blinding light epiphany. For some people, it's a slower type of thing. For you, was it a slower thing or was it like this immediate, okay, I'm, <laughs> mom, I'm leaving, right? What, what, what was that? Mm. It was, I don't know what you mean by slow or fast, but I think it took me maybe three or four months. Got you. Okay. Realize that this was the right decision <laughs> um, to say, like, once I realized that it was possible, right? I met that German girl. I was like, okay, people are doing this. There's a community here. This is what I want to be doing I, they also invited me they told me the dancer I took five dance classes with a um with a guy named Carlos Ceballos who is yeah. the um director of the school I went to and and I, he did this whole video with me and he was like oh it's too bad you're leaving you could be a part of our dance school and I was like wait what <laughs> I could be a part of like a dance school so once I had all of this those things sort of, it seemed to fall into place. I knew that I could get a job working as a teacher there because my mom's friend was doing that. So I, um, there were enough things fell into place for me to feel like this is possible and I should do it. And now, you know, I, I don't have that same anxiety about it anymore. I mean, I'm constantly looking at like where I can move to, like, yeah. should I go teach in Korea? Should I go teach in Emirates? Should I go to Brazil? <laughs> I, I admire that so much, right? Um, because, and, and it kind of leads into the second question, right? Because for me, a lot of the roadblock in that is, am I going to be able to adapt to the cultural difference? Not only in language, but just in little things, right? In little 
the, the comfortabilities that I've built up in Brooklyn are not available many other places in this country and definitely not in the world, right? So um, what, were, what were the noticeable differences in uh, Columbia in terms of culture and how were you able to adapt or circumvent or surmount those differences? Mm, okay. Um, I think that the most noticeable differences and the things that I still struggle with in Colombia mm-hmm. um, or, well, you know, let me, let me start with the, the positive noticeable differences. Yeah. Um, some of them were that people are much more warm. People are much more um, physical, right? They'll touch you much more. When you say hello, you kiss people on the cheek, mm-hmm. um, which I already knew because I had gone there as a child, but it, you know, becomes a part of your everyday life. People are much more affectionate. People are, um, well, for the most part, people are um, more present. Um, They definitely work, you know, a lot, but it, it, it feel, it doesn't feel like work is the maybe center of life in the way that it feels like it is in the United States. Um, Sometimes I think that, uh, I mean, I was also living in a very sort of bohemian neighborhood, but gotcha. but it felt like the the value of um, a family of of having lunch, right? Like people have a full at least one full lunch hour that they take and they eat lunch like with soup and salad and and meat and rice and beans and like a full and have a coffee afterward. You know, like there's a um sort of appreciation for those moments that sort of keep you healthy and keep you sane I think um and it was definitely hard to come back here (laughs) and see and hear about people like working through lunch I was like what (laughs) What? like how could you do that to yourself Um, so, so those are some wonderful things. And I, I definitely miss that about, about Colombia. Um, the, the challenging things were, um, one bureaucracy, <laughs> the, um, like just getting, uh, oof, like setting up the internet or like dealing with the bank, like take, can, can take a very long time. Um, gotcha. you need to have your ID card, you need to make sure you have your, they like take your fingerprint for like on like 10 different pages and uh, you have to do something for the bank. You have to go to the bank and like, <laughs> um, wait in long lines. And so that kind of thing can be a little bit frustrating if you come from this culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it can feel like things become a little bit inefficient and even like, even the sort of laid backness, like I would have, I taught at a university and we would have meetings and the meeting would be at like two o'clock. And I'm like sitting in the cafeteria with my coworkers having a coffee. It's two o'clock. No one's getting up. We're still talking. We're like, oh, whatever, whatever. I'm like, oh, don't we have a meeting at two? They're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And like everyone shows up 15 minutes late or whatever. And it's yeah. fine. Um, but then I remember I had a meeting where it was like, we all had to be there at, at the university at like seven or six maybe. And the, the meeting didn't, st- I mean, it was like, we were waiting 15, 20, 30, an hour later, it hadn't started. And I was just like, are you, 
really? <laughs> I need to be somewhere. So I ended up just leaving, which was fine. <laughs> um, but, but so, so it can sort of like push that, yeah. that, that, sort of uh, Pura Vida, which is a Costa Rican thing, but that sort of laid back lifestyle is, can can get in the way of a certain sense of um, efficiency sometimes um, with that I think we're really used to in the West. Um, I need to tell you oh, about this, uh, Puerto, what is it called, Puerto Vida? Pura Vida. <laughs> tell her about this, because she's always late, so she would love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what they say in Costa Rica. I don't know if that is, accurate i don't want to like offend anybody people like costa ricans would be like excuse me <laughs> what we mean by that um, <laughs> um but but yeah that sort of sense of like you can be very present and in the moment and if some, something takes longer than you'd anticipated it's okay and you'll be late but whatever like we're enjoying life we're here yeah um the second thing was the violence and this is you know obviously uh there's violence in many countries um, mm -hmm. all latin american countries cali is i think it's still within the like top 20 most dangerous cities in the world wow um so and they and that's calculated based on the murder rate so i actually had a friend who was like uh some physicist or something I, he was from the he was from europe u.s mm -hmm. i don't remember but he was saying that he's like well based on like that statistic and if you look at the math like somebody who's lived it here for, lived in cali for three years should know somebody who has died and i was like oh yeah i've definitely like i don't know personally but i have like several friends of friends who have been murdered oh. um so that that is you know not not easy <laughs> to live with. I think it makes you appreciate life, um, appreciate the moment. It, it, it reminds me a little bit of <laughs> um, wherever I go, and maybe you have the same thing being from Fort Greene, wherever I go, um, I'm like, I'm from Brooklyn. Like, uh, <laughs> it's not that tough. I'm from Brooklyn. What are you talking about? Get out of here. And then like, I, I, last time I said it, I was in New Orleans. And I was like, all right, let me tuck my Brooklyn card away because New Orleans is not <laughs> to be played with. They don't care about if you're from Brooklyn. But um, were there any type of um, parallels that you saw in the kind of, because Fort Greene, like you said, back when you were coming up, is a very different Fort Greene than it is right now, right? Were there any parallels or is Cali just like, nah, <laughs> different level? Um, were there parallels? That's an interesting question. Um, hmm. I don't, I don't remember. And you're, you're asking as far as like the sort of, uh, violence and the... And cause I think of, when I think of Fort Greene and, you know, I, I have a family out there as well. I think of like the Alicia Keys, there's always this great video, this Alicia Keys in I think his name is Chom video where she's talking about like growing up in Fort Greene and seeing all of the things going on in like the eighties and nineties in Fort Greene. And I wonder, like I witnessed it when I've gone to different places and different urban areas around the country. Uh, I wonder what it's like in Colombia because we always have this, 
at least I have this vision of Colombia of like, oh, wow, that's that's where the gangsters go. That's where they get down. Right. But it might not be that way. You know, so what were there any po- um, kind of parallels or was it just like that's all hype? <laughs> no, I think I think that there probably are parallels. <laughs> I don't know that I um, saw them or experienced them very <laughs> much, but the <laughs> you weren't uh, handling the bricks and you know dealing it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, but that certainly exists in Cali. I mean, of course, um, I. Yeah, I, I, uh, my, my grandmother's house is in a very yeah. middle income neighborhood. They actually have, the neighborhoods are actually classified by um, number. It's like one through seven. So one is, it's called estratos, like social strata, I guess. Um, so one is the lowest income and seven is the highest. Is it one through seven or one through six? Um, so we're in like estrato tres. Are we three or four? Maybe we're four. I'm so sort of right in the middle. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? How they <laughs> define, and that affects actually the way you pay bills. So if you're like in Estrato Uno, which assumes that you're in a lower income neighborhood, your bills are are cheaper than if you are in a in a higher income neighborhood. So kind of like reverse redlining almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sort of. Um, I don't really know what kind of impacts yeah. that can have on on the society. Um, yeah. Of course, there are sort of like social, like a caste system, personal ones. But yeah. um, wow. you know, obviously, people can move around, right? You can move from yeah. different, different strata. It's it's not. I mean, if you you know make a lot of money really somehow, then you can move. Yeah. to any neighborhood you want you know it's not like you are forced to be in one place yeah. um but anyway I, I i wasn't um really not hanging out in the hood in cali <laughs> um oh i have friends you know who are from definitely have many dancers are from from the barrios of, oh. of cali so let's talk about that right so you didn't find any bricks i can't get any you know connects or any plugs from you but what you did find is um, a great culture of salsa. And um, for those of you, we're, we're obviously going to you know, talk about how to connect with Camilla after. But for those of you who uh, aren't already connected, please go check her out. Amazing dancer, right? Like uh, we talked about graceful linguistics she is graceful in movement as well. Like super amazing dancer um, from what I've seen. So talk a little bit about finding that treasure and finding that part of the culture. Thank you. Thank you for the compliment. Um, I, how did I, how did I find the treasure? Um, It's there. It's all in the, it's all in the, the culture of, of Kali. They, um, Salsa is is their thing, you know, like you go anywhere in Cali and you hear salsa and and not like, I mean, no offense to the radio stations here in New York, but like, it's not this like modern, like, 
más o menos kind of salsa. It's like the salsa from the 60s and 70s that is like so good. I mean, it's just such quality music. Um, and, and that is what you hear. I mean, there's some modern stuff too, but they have an incredible ear for just like the greatest um, Latin, Cuban, Puerto Rican music from New York. They've make, made their own music. Um, and it's everywhere. It's in the supermarkets. It's the people across the street are playing salsa. Um, in the taxi, I mean, <laughs> that is their thing. And then, hmm? Salsa is life, kind of, like, everywhere. It's inundated in the co- I love that. Yeah, yeah. And people, like, everybody knows the words to all the classics, like, little kids, old people, like, everybody. Um, and... And then the dance, you know, there's the music and then there's the dance. Um, and and they've been, you know, even though Salsa is not from Cali um, in any way, they uh, have adopted this music as their own and, and the dance form as their own. And it's, um, it's just what, you know, when you go out, um, you go out and you're probably going to hear some Salsa, like there will be. That's what you go dance to at the club. You know, there's some reggaeton, there's maybe some bachata, there's um, maybe some even hip hop. But um, most people, if you're going out, you're going out to dance salsa. And it's not necessarily like what you see me doing on Instagram, which is which is like the performance style. And, and if that's made for a show, mm-hmm. um, you know, people dance. It's social dancing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it wasn't hard to find because um, it's because it's everywhere. So once I got there and, and decided that I wanted to take salsa lessons, I just went to one of the many um, professional dance schools and started meeting dancers and teachers and um, incredible, incredible artists and um, people who you've maybe maybe seen if people watch world of dance mm-hmm. um, with jennifer lopez the i think a couple of seasons ago she had um swing latino on there and they are one of the top dance schools in cali and she now they now dance with her they tour with her um, because she loved them so much um they were they danced with her in the super bowl and i've got a couple of friends there and um, did this last season, um, Adrianita and Jefferson were on the show and they're also from Cali mm-hmm. and they are incredible. They have won the world games several times. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're just like some of the best dancers in the world are there. And, and, and they're all a part of this, this relatively small community the, the city is a city of 3 million people. And You've just got these incredible athletes there. (laughs) I love the fact that, you know, we were talking about voice and language earlier. I love that dance and certain types of music um, are, act as like a great equalizer, right? So um, they might not speak the same type of Spanish or same type of dialect, but when the music comes on, we're all speaking the language of dance, or you know, you might be in Cali or you might be in Brooklyn, but when that salsa comes on, we're all talking with our feet and our motion and our body. With me, I'm probably not gonna talk as well as you do because 
I can't find a beat if you gave me a map. But um, I, I, I wonder when you come back from Cali to New York, um, where does the dance, where does your relationship with dance develop, right? Because you're now doing a documentary um, and I have seen you, you know, reach out to different dancers and, and dance people in, in New York, right? So where does that go? Where, where does that evolve to when you come back? Um, where does my relationship with dancing evolve to as far as like working with the documentary? As far as working with the documentary, as far as reaching out to people, what was the dance community like in, uh, in, in New York or in United States period, right? Mm, mm. Yeah, um, I, I was involved in the dance community when I, before I left. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it looks different. It looks this it kind of looks the same <laughs> to an outsider. I think all the dance communities, <laughs> look, all the Latin dance communities, maybe look the same <laughs> um, around the world. Um, but we all they all have not necessarily different styles. But there are maybe six official different styles of salsa. So I originally learned the on one or LA style, and I danced that in Boston, and then. I came to New York and New York has its own style called New York on two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was involved in the social scene before I went to Cali. And now that I'm back um, and working on this documentary, I am not hugely involved, sadly. <laughs> I mean, it feels like um, because of coronavirus, like I feel like I'm not involved in anything. I'm <laughs> Like, am I seeing anybody? Um, But um, yeah, I think that the, the, you know, the documentary is so particular, it's so specific to Colombia and it's so specific to Cali and I'm I'm not really letting it expand beyond that. Um, So I'm, I'm definitely open and I would I would like to sort of work with more dancers here in New York and and let them know of what I'm doing and um, connect with them a little bit more through social media but I haven't been I, I love the fact that you are doing this documentary one because even if it's it's going to be subtitled yeah yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll know you know, a little bit of what's going on. But I love the fact that you are uh, opening up that world to so many people because even right now, even thinking about it, I didn't connect the fact that Corona, you know, this this pandemic uh, season would have kind of dismantled a lot of that, right? Because it's not like you're listening to DJ D-Nice on Instagram, right? Salsa has a lot to do with touch and feel and, and being, you know, partnered up. So it, 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 thank you for putting that document, this documentary together to teach us more about it. Um, what's one of the biggest kind of takeaways that you've gotten and that you would want people to get from watching the documentary? Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a big one. So, so the, the, the documentary is, is um, focused on, the idea of gender performance. Mm. So in salsa, we have 
as many people know <laughs> in partner dances, there's usually a man and there's usually a woman. And it sort of emulates a sort of like heterosexual courtship, right? <laughs> That's sort of what it, I think looks like. Um, it's, it's sensual, it's, there's a sort of ma man, woman, masculine, feminine thing. Um, but what I, what I found while I was living in Cali was that, um, that that gendered aspect was very sort of performative um, and that it wasn't necessarily, especially in the dance community, it didn't really matter who was dancing which role. So in, um, in competition, we have uh, uh, the many different categories for, for the competitions. And one category is called the same gender category, um, where you have two people of the same gender dancing together. It's usually men who participate in this category. Um, and one will dance what's thought of as the masculine role and one will dance the feminine role. Mm. Um, and you can see that that is happening in the body movements because the, the technique, there's, there's definitely technique dance technique attached to the masculine or man role and technique attached to the feminine or woman role in salsa. Um, so I'm really kind of looking at that and looking at how um, dancers in Cali are um, doing that, right? We're sort of breaking traditional, traditional gender roles um, by having two people of the same gender dance together um, or people, you know, women dance the man's role or man dance, men dance the woman's role or the feminine role. Um, and also looking at how this is, um, becomes more inclusive for the LGBTQ community um, and how it is empowering for women yeah. um, as well as in a sort of, in the sense that it often is almost like a celebration of femininity. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, that is, that is, that is what I, I hope people can, can take away from this, that this, that the people of Cali are using their culture and their art that they have developed over many years um, to be a more inclusive society i feel first of all my mind is blown right because i never realized again these things that you don't realize until someone points it out to you i never realized the 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 heaviness of gender when it comes to uh salsa but not only salsa but you know a whole bunch of different types of dance forms and i was while you were talking i kind of tried to envision in my mind what it would look like without including gender mm -hmm. and and it it's all for me it's almost impossible right or, or it looks very different from what um I would think of as, as that normal quote-unquote normal uh dance routine right um have you I mean have you tried it like how does it feel being a gender or doing it genderlessly or <laughs> well I would say you know it's interesting it, it doesn't I think when you're 
dancing, especially for performance, it, it almost, to me, it sort of feels like it, it isn't genderless. It's very, um, you know, the, the technique, depending on which role you're dancing, the technique is very, feels very gendered, you know, it, especially in rehearsals. Um, <laughs> I had so so many times the, 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 my directors would be like, oh no, you have to be more, more feminine, stand like, like I had to learn how to walk, like, like I had to learn how to walk on stage. <laughs> Like, because there's just so much involved in the sort of feminine way that a dancer needs to walk on stage. And even though I'm a woman, obviously, and I identify as a woman, um, I identify as a, I'm a cis woman, right? Like, it's still like, you need to learn how to, to perform femininity, to perform this very sort of exaggerated form of femininity. Super um, type of like, I'm, uh, what's the, is it kind of like, I don't want to mix up dances or cultures, but is it kind of like the, the Carmen type of, or whoever that was with the fruits in her hair, like very sexualized type of thing? Yeah. 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 It's, it's very sensual. It's very, um, it can sometimes be also, um, sort of empowered you know you have to come on with a presence I mean no matter who you are as a dancer you have to walk on stage with a presence um you know your chest out your shoulders back um but there you know if you're dancing the the feminine role you're gonna move your hips a little bit differently your arms will look a little bit softer um but also maybe sometimes look very powerful um and, you know, if you're dancing the masculine, masculine role, it's going to be a little bit different as far as the way you hold your body. Um, so, yeah, it, and, and, and it's interesting, you know, to me, that felt very weird at first <laughs> to be like 21st century woman, like studied sociology. <laughs> I'm just like, why are you like, why are you yelling at me about how I don't look like a woman? Um, and like, this is not like, what is this? Um, but I think that I eventually felt, uh, very empowered once I was able to, um, learn how to perform that role, learn how to perform the sort of very feminine role. And I think that people who, no matter who they are, right. Um, gay men, straight men, trans folks, all of which exist in this community, Mm -hmm. um, they learn how to perform that role also um, and the feminine role and many you know people learn how to perform the masculine role and it can be very empowering to sit in those two energies as a dancer um, and and it's really it's cool that you don't you know it's it, in this community they're not sort of worried about who it is who you are off stage right? Even if you're a cis man off stage and you're going to dance the the feminine role. Okay. Like, let's do it. Like get, get your body together. You need to do this. <laughs> like hold your, your hips like this or whatever. Um, and it is definitely very, very binary, I would say. Um, and I'm, I am really interested to hear what, what people who are who are non-gender conforming or non-binary what would think or feel about this or um, 
their responses to it. Um, I'm not sort of so worried about who agrees or disagrees, but I'm, I'm, I'm just interested in, in how they would respond to that. I can't wait to, to, uh, I'm not, you know, saying that I'm not gender binary, whatever you just, that term, but (laughs) I'm, I am interested to, because a lot of times when I watch things, especially things that kind of take me out of my original perspective of it, I'm very uh, sensitive to how I feel at the exact moment um, because I'm cognitive of the conditioning that I have, that I've grown up with. And if something is making me feel uncomfortable, that means I'm learning mm. to choose which path I go down in that in that lesson. Um, and that kind of brings me, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but it kind of brings me to the last lap of our, of this amazing conversation that I'm enjoying so much of. Um, we always say here that purpose is never personal, right? Um, it's that through line that I ask every single body who's passed through uh, these the sound wave. Um, and I want to ask you that, but I want to ask you that in with this kind of slant, right? You said in the beginning that your will to be a world changer um, that came from college and uh, that came, I'm sure LREI had something to do with that because, you know, we're a bunch of world changers. Um, and then using dance and and your courageousness and moving and traveling and um, you know doing all of that, right? How does being a world changer fit into Camilla's purpose outside of just self fulfillment? Outside of just you know, I just want to do it because it makes me feel good, right? Being a world change. How does that how does that affect it? And how do you see yourself changing the world from here on out? Mm-hmm. You mean how does how does dance um, help me be uh, what, a world changer, or whether it's dance or teaching or teaching dance or just because you've ha- had so many paths of your journey so far, right? And and you know I admire it. Um, so how is that all gonna? How does that all come together, right? To be a world changer. Okay. Okay. Outside of it, just making me, okay. That's, that's, oh my gosh. That's a great question, Kyle. Um, (laughs) I'm still asking myself that question, but I think that, um, you know, that's really interesting because I, when I wanted to be a world changer, when I was in, um, (laughs) university and when I was even in high school, I think that I, I was definitely a bleeding heart and believed in equality and um, making a difference. And, you know, I tried to do it through, through teaching and I got burnt out. And um, I think that after that, I went on a really, you know, I, I had a big heartbreak and I, and I went on a really sort of internal journey of thinking about how was it that I was gonna live um, the way that I wanted to live my life, not the way that I was expected to or what I should do or the good thing to do or the right thing to do. You know, I wasn't so concerned with, I stopped being so concerned with um, sort of the right way to affect change. Um, And 
I had a friend actually who told me, she said, she's, she's Buddhist. And she said, you know, um, they say that the best thing you can do for the world is make yourself happy. And I thought, hmm, what an, and like, I've not, I haven't forgot. She told me that like 10 years ago. Um, and there's another quote, there's, an, oh my gosh, I can't remember this man, if this is awful, um, you should look it up. <laughs> um, but he says that you, uh, what is it? Ask not what the world needs of from you, because what the world needs, oh, no, 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 ask not what the, what the world needs from you, rather ask what makes you come alive, because the world needs people who have come alive. Okay, wow. Something like that. Um, I'm sad. I'm, it's, I really need to remember who, who, who said this because it is, uh, certainly something that I decided to live by. Um, Thurman, Howard Thurman. That's his name. (laughs) Thank you. The Howard Thurman quote, the Thurman quotation. Um, you can, uh, uh, post that everywhere. Um, so I, I, I really worked on that internal journey, you know, I was like, I, I need to come alive and that's what's going to help me help others. Because if I'm a burnt out teacher and I'm not really enjoying it, I'm not going to be the best teacher I can be for my kids. Um, you know, I need to be doing the thing that is actually making me come alive and making me shine and making me, um, feel passion uh, so that I can actually affect change and help other people and, you know, whatever. Now, how does what I'm doing now (laughs) do that? Um, You know, I'm not quite sure. I would say that um, doing this documentary is something that is very important to me personally, um, mostly because it feels like almost like the way, the most authentic way that I can um, thank my Colombian people, (laughs) you know, thank this community that taught me so much about um, self-worth and about being empowered, you know, being, getting into dancing was definitely really, really hard and being a part of a professional dance company was doing that at, at 26 and, and, and working with people who had been dancing since they were children mm-hmm. um, and being, um, you know, in that world was, was, was challenging, but it made me uh, really gain a lot of appreciation for myself and, and feel much more empowered. You know how to look in the mirror for hours and hours a day, you start to see something beautiful, you know, <laughs> um, and, and believe in yourself in a very different way. Um, so, so I'm, I'm so, so grateful for this community and this documentary is, is for me sort of like a way that I can share my, experience and the way that I see these people as, um, as, as capable and beautiful and intelligent and, um, inclusive and all of these things that I find to be very beautiful. Um, and, and I, I know that they do too. It's their culture. Um, and, and I think since I was very, very young, the question that I asked myself about that, you know, why, why is it that in Cali we have 
they have this kind of life and I have to see this little five-year-old begging me for food. Um, and in, in the U S it's completely different, you know, you know, not always different, but the, the experience that I had was different and one of much more privilege. And, and certainly the relationship between the U S and Colombia is a, um, can be a very colonial one. Yeah. The U.S. is is the colonizer, and that is the case throughout Latin America. Um, and and I uh, so this project is um, and and my work in Colombia and teaching there has always my goal has always been to almost like give voice to the people there and say and not like I want to necessarily be the one to have to allow them to to vocalize whatever mm-hmm. it is they need to vocalize but mm-hmm. bro what is the internet is it back it's back <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh sorry I couldn't tell like sometimes I see your face and I'm like oh I'm frozen I can tell by his face um <laughs> here <laughs> I can see you. <laughs> All right, you're good. You never freeze on my end. I'm always here. Oh. Okay. Maybe it's me. I don't know. I don't know. I think it might be me because I've seen that your internet connection is unstable thing. Can I tell you, uh, every time when I first started, not to please keep your point in your head, but when I first started to do this, and my internet with freedom was like right around all of the protests starting. And I was like, oh my gosh, did something big happen? Like, are they blowing stuff up? Like, what the, what's going on? And I would freak out, like on record. I have me freaking out, like, what's going on? Oh. <laughs> Everybody. But I'm glad it's not that. Um, sorry, but please go ahead. No, no worries. Um it's not over yet um what was I saying oh yeah I think I think um I think in in Colombia what I've what I've found is that sometimes and I think this probably happens a lot in the third world or developing world quote-unquote however you want to put it um that there there's always a sort of look to the West as being the ones with the answers and the money and we need to do whatever they do. I mean, even when I was there, it was like, you know, I didn't have to work that hard to get this job at a university. I was a native English speaker and I had a degree from an American university. And that was like enough for people to be like, Oh, Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, and I was like, no, (laughs) this is not like you have, Every, you have so many resources in this country. There are so many intelligent people. This country could be equally as powerful economically, culturally um, as these Western countries, but because of the history of colonization and dependence and um, corporate you know, America taking over the world, that is not the case in, in Colombia and many other Latin American and global South nations. Um, but that doesn't mean that they don't have the answer to all of life's problems in the same way that people here might have the answer to all of life's problems, you know? So, um, so yeah, so I think that the many global South nations often look to the West and the United States and Europe to, for the economic answers, social answers. Um, 
And my contention has been that that's not always the case. There is plenty of, there are resources um, in Latin America. There are fully capable people. There are incredible universities um, and inventions and wonderful things going on there. Um, But they have had this relationship of dependence with, um, with the United States and with Europe of economic dependence of um, colonization and and that has has uh, certainly negatively affected I think the the economies there um, and people's ability to um, flourish and so so my project is 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 really meant to highlight this community um, and highlight what they have been doing, what they've been, how they've been using their culture to be incredibly progressive, um, and how this is, you know, this is something that is is born there, and it's, it's definitely, you know, they have been influenced by the United States and other countries, certainly, um, but it's it's something that is unique to them and it's something that's very special and I want to and I really want to celebrate that and highlight that and make a project that um that shows that both for the people of Colombia the people of Latin America and and for those who are outside of Latin America and the United States um and other dance communities around the world I love that I want to thank you for not only thank you for being here, that's obvious, right? But I want to thank you for your light. Um, A lot of times um, we see people do things, um, but they do it from a lens of self-aggrandizement, you know, doing things so that they can quote unquote get on. And, you know, I, I have a lot of people that, you know, come through here and, you know, as great of the thing that they do, it's obvious that it's from a lens of look at me. Um, But throughout this conversation, um, I've really gotten a sense of what you do uh, really sheds light on a lot of things that people don't normally look at. is it's an easy way you have this way that uh is really enlightening and no no reason i mean no question that you are a teacher through and through even if you're not in the classroom so i thank you for what you do um i have i got you know notes on notes of these um (laughs) i i used to call it an aha moment but you got a new term you said the oh wait moment so these are all oh wait moments now Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what is what is an oh wait moment so you said um back in the when we were talking about the german lady and talking about um we, you said oh wait life doesn't have to be conventionally lived so i was like oh i like that term i might i might borrow it from you for episodes <laughs> <laughs> having an oh wait moment and i thank you for the many just there's way too many to name right now even um just about the whole West being the savior type of thing. That's an oh wait moment, right? Going back to talking about, you know, voice and and being bilingual, oh wait moment. So thank you so much 
Yeah, I would say that the that St. West being a savior thing is definitely a huge one that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, and especially in the context of like, uh, of immigration um, to the United States lately. And I've, you know, obviously my mother was an immigrant. She didn't come here for necessarily because she needed to economically or she wasn't like fleeing persecution or violence. I mean, in some ways there was violence in Colombia, but um, there is a lot of um, frustration that I feel around um, immigration, the talk around immigration right now. And even from most uh, often from the, the liberal community where it's sort of like, oh, they're coming here for a better life. And, um, and it, and it, you know, it feels like a, it can feel very frustrating um, and sort of paternalistic because I think to myself, what do you mean? Like they, these people come from, from countries that are incredibly resourced and rich and lives that are, could be um, wonderful and have way better quality of life than we do in the United States. Um, But their, but their countries have been, have been economically and politically destroyed by American politics. I just think that that's a, um, I get frustrated with the, the, how superficial I think those conversations sometimes and um, thank you for being on. Um, can you tell us quickly where we can find more of you and where the where and when the documentary will be available? Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, well, you can find more of me um, publicly through my, my documentary um, Instagram account, which is hanero.salsa. So that's spelled G-E- N-E-R-O dot salsa, S-A-L-S-A. Um, and I think there's a trailer up there. You can see the trailer there. Nice. And when will the documentary be out? That's a great question. It will, it's, it's taking a long time. I'm editing, I'm in the early phases of editing. Um, so, I don't know. I'm. I don't know how. I'm. Um, it's a kind of a solo project right now. Love it. So we'll we'll see. You can follow me on that page, and and you'll get updates. Um, yeah. When you get your Netflix deal, I want. I want to. <laughs> I want to be the first to know. I get the exclusive first interview. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Director. I had one. I had one. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one I get. <laughs> I want the post. Uh, the post Netflix blow up interview. Well, thank you. <laughs> but thank you for being here. Um, thank you for having me. It's so fun. This was this was a really great conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but we'll be seeing and hearing more from you, um, hopefully in the future. Uh, so for now, say goodbye, good people. <laughs> goodbye. Y'all stay put. I have some business to handle with y'all. And Camilla, stay put. I have some business to handle with you. And I will see y'all in a second. Peace. Guys, I love conversations like this because they are so enlightening and so impactful. And they just brim with vibrance, right? Because a lot of times what will happen, I don't know about with y'all, but with me is uh, we'll put people in this other category. 
where we put them on such a pedestal and on such a height that we excuse ourselves from um, enacting things in our lives that we can do and, and places that we can go and experiences that we can have that are out of the normal and out of the, uh, the ordinary, right? But talking to those people and, and kind of humanizing those people and relating to those people and just having a conversation and busting down the, the information and busting down the process and, you know, taking the fear out of it can not only help them seem uh, uh, normal to us, but use their story as a launching pad for our own. So I pray that you guys um, really get in touch uh, with Camilla and please watch that that documentary. I've seen little clips of it and it looks incre incredible, phenomenal. And just the lens that uh, that she's taking um, and, and, and the, the path that she's taking and what she's talking about is just phenomenal. There are going to be a lot of open eyes from that documentary. So um, I look forward to to that documentary being out and I look forward to you all engaging with it. Um, as for now, we're going to leave like we always leave. Think good, see good, do good. But most importantly, most importantly, be good. And have that oh wait moment. <laughs> Peace. Good people, don't forget to follow Finding Good Times at Finding Good Times on all platforms, at Finding Good Times on all available platforms, and of course, FindingGoodTimes.com. Keep following, keep sharing, keep reposting, most importantly, keep being good. Love y'all.